Thank you for listening to Emmanuel Baptist Church's podcast. For more information about the church, please visit our website at www.emmanuelmanning.com. Thanks and enjoy the sermon. Let's read together. Follow along as I read Psalm 19 verses. um, That's what I meant. We could read Psalm 19. That'd be good. But Revelation 19 verses 1 to 10. 1 to 10. Uh, Next week, Lord willing, what we'll do is do Revelation 19, 11 through chapter 20. Because over these two chapters, what we have is the Lord kind of destroying all the enemies of the church, or at least rendering them inoperable in significant ways. And so we'll look at chapter 19 and 20 next week, and then we'll do 21, and then we'll do 22, and then we'll be done uh, with Revelation. So follow along as I read Revelation 19, 1 through 10. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute who has corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah! And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. And it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Well, you'll remember I said last week that um, I had to bolt right after the service was done because my wife and I were headed to Greensboro, North Carolina uh, to see the wedding of a friend. Uh, Let me tell you about my friend, Eric, uh, one of the dearest friends and longest friends I've had, I met him in college. Uh, he came in at the same time as me, but he was like six years older than I was. We toured in a band together, released an album together in a band that we toured with. Uh, and uh, then I quit the band for Christina. <laughs> but we stayed friends nevertheless. Uh, and um, my friend Eric and has been through a lot. Um, after college, Eric has always been about uh, taking broken things and by God's grace putting them back together because he came from a b- broken background. Uh, married a lady uh, who 
as it turned out, was uh, just a, a terrible drug addict. And uh, although he worked hard and labored hard, um, eventually because of that, that marriage had to be broken up and he adopted her two kids. Uh, so he took on a burden and uh, tried to be faithful and then uh, over the past couple of years met a lady uh, who was very godly, very on fire for the Lord, um, been through a lot herself, but has come out of it a, a better Christian. And last week I got to see them um, get married. It was great. Weddings are always great, aren't they? Well, I can't say always, but they're usually really great. And it makes sense because a wedding is kind of what started history, right? The Lord made Adam and Eve and um, brought Eve to Adam, the first sort of wedding. And the first song in the Bible was sung when Adam saw Eve. Just that love is great. And then the Bible is going to end. It does end with a wedding where the bride of Christ comes down uh, to marry her husband. And there's a little bit of that in every wedding. And that's what we see today. But this is revelation, um, and which means the bad stuff has to be taken care of first. Uh, because Jesus is calling his bride out of a circumstance where the world is also being tempted, not by a beautiful bride, but by a, a harlot. And somehow tempting, and yet at the same time, um, like ugly. And I hate to say this, because this is going to sound mean, but um, when, I, when I read about this whore of Babylon, this prostitute of Babylon, that Jesus sort of defeated, as we read last week in chapter 17 and chapter 18, the, the whore of Babylon reminds me of like a, an older Hollywood starlet who's had too much plastic surgery, if you know what I mean. Like maybe she used to be something, but now you can tell a lot of work has been done and it ain't working, right? Um, and that's the picture here of this beautiful and yet messed up harlot Babylon. Uh, and all the world was kind of tangled up in this harlot. Uh, and as a matter of fact, we saw last week that when John saw the vision of this Babylon, this Jezebel, even he, it said, marveled. That is, the apostle himself was kind of in his heart looking at that going, wow, maybe there is something to this. And so for the sake of his church and for the sake of his people, Jesus uh, destroyed Babylon. And last week that led to chapter 18 where kind of all the peoples of the land mourned for her. Back in chapter 18 it says in verse 9, the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her because she's now destroyed. Verse 11 of chapter 18 says, And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her, since no one buys their cargo anymore. Or verse 15, The merchants of the waters who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning, mourning aloud. Or verse 18, And they cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning. What is like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned. The earth... Uh, that lost bit of humanity is weeping over the destruction of this Babylonian prostitute. Because they had bought her tales, they had been drugged in by her temptations, they believed her promises, 
And now that she has been destroyed, they're mourning and wailing and weeping because they've realized that all of their hope came up empty. And then as we look at today's passage, you see the people of God and song for song, they're matching the weeping and the wailing with praise to God. Now, this is one of those things that we have to deal with um, in, in our own day and age because many of us believe a, a, a saccharine, syrupy, sappy vision of Christianity where uh, Jesus just told us to love everybody, which what we mean by that is Jesus just told us to be genteel southern men and southern women. And so when bad things happen to bad people, we're not to praise the Lord or gloat. And there's an essence of truth in that. We, we weep and wail for all who are separated from the Lord. Amen? But then we come to those parts of the Bible where God's people are crying out to the Lord for deliverance from evil. And they say the kinds of things that can make our hair curl. Or even here, where John is giving us a prophecy of the destruction of that uh, uh, idolatrous and adulterous city of Jerusalem. And we hear the Christians calling out and singing songs that she's now been taken away. And what it does is it either makes us not read those parts of the Bible and pretend they're not there, or it makes us realize that Christianity is about grace and truth blood and sweat, temptation and deliverance, and not just about being nice, right? The word nice actually comes from an old English word that means idiot. <laughs> so be, you don't want to be nice, right? Uh, why? Why are God's people singing at the destruction of Babylon? Let's remind ourselves here about who Babylon is. What we've said throughout our study of the book of Revelation is that while the book of Revelation was written concerning the future from the vantage point of these Christians in the first century, that many of the events of Revelation related to us are in the past. That what the book of Revelation is about is it's about the destruction that God brought on his old covenant people and upon the city of Jerusalem because she rejected Jesus and chose Caesar over Christ. You'll remember those people said, let his blood be upon us and our children. We have no king but Caesar. And so the people of God that he had groomed and protected and brought throughout the Old Testament to a point he sends his Messiah. And John says in his gospel, he came unto his own and his own did what? Received him not. And so the book of Revelation is a record of, from, from their perspective, the future destruction of Jerusalem that happened in the year A.D. 70. And we said this makes a whole lot more sense of the book to see it this way because there are things in history that seem to fall right in line with the way we've read the book of Revelation, that we have these three cycles of seven. We actually have four sevens. In the book of Revelation, these cycles where it repeats the same judgment in a more intense way from a different perspective. And lo and behold, if you go to Deuteronomy 32, where the people of God are entering into this covenant with God in the Old Testament, 
He says, four times seven, I will destroy you if you turn away from me. And they had, they had rejected Christ. And so we've said things throughout this that may be new to you, but I hope that you'll see they make sense so that we have uh, the beast, which we said is the, the Roman Empire and, and Caesar. And we've looked at the false prophet, which we said was the kind of the prophetic hierarchy of the priestly class in Israel. And we looked last week at this harlot of Babylon and we said, goodness gracious, she sure looks a whole lot like a priest would have looked clad in silver, I'm sorry, clad in gold and scarlet and blue and purple. The way that this harlot last week was described sounds a whole lot like the, uh, the temple curtain that was in the temple that was made in Babylon. And so what we've said is that though this applies to us, and I'll show you how, we're dealing with what the Lord was doing in ending the old covenant and bringing a new world, a new covenant into being in Jesus. And so in order to do that, he's got to take care of some business, which he's been doing. After all, Revelation 1 and Revelation 22 says that these things concern something which must shortly take place. And I'll just say this before we move on. It's interesting to me that we take the word shortly, which is in the letter part of the, the book, and make that figurative. And then we take all the stuff in the middle, which is allegorical, and we make it literal. And what I'm asking you to do is flip all that on its head. John was giving a prophecy that was shortly to take place. As a matter of fact, it took place within one generation, just like Jesus said it would in Matthew 24, 25, and so on. And so last week we saw the destruction of this harlot and this week we see God's people singing at his victory. And this is about worship, because as I said to you, in chapter 19, verse 1, verse 3, verse 5, verse 6, you have something akin to hallelujah. And this is important because the word hallelujah only occurs in the New Testament these three times. It's not a word that's everywhere in the New Testament. And that should make your good Bible reading ears go up. Why does he say hallelujah here? And what would a, a Christian, a Jewish Christian, someone in Jerusalem at that time, someone in these churches that this letter was written to, if they heard that word hallelujah three or four times, what would it draw their minds back to? Well, it'd draw their minds back to Psalm 113 to 118. Because the people would sing these songs as they went to Jerusalem, and each would end with hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. You with me? Remember what I said. You can't read Revelation with the newspaper in one hand and Revelation in the other. You have to read Revelation with it in one hand and the Old Testament in the other hand. And this would have drawn them back to these Hallel Psalms. Now, what are the Hallel Psalms about? We are getting nerdy this morning, but it's my job to explain the Bible to you. Right? So that's what we're going to do. We'll, we'll get to the application and how this applies to us throughout the sermon. But for now, it's just good to learn some stuff so that you can know how to read your Bible. Amen? I plan on preaching all 66 books here to Manuel and then dropping dead. All right? Which means I'm going to slow down a little bit after this. But um, I want you to be good Bible readers. What was Psalm 113 to Psalm 118 about? Why were they grouped together and what do they mean? Well, Psalm 113 through Psalm 118 
are all about God delivering his people from Egypt and setting up true worship among his people that would then go throughout the nations. This afternoon, you've got nothing better to do. Go read Psalm 113 through Psalm 118 and you'll see this. It's about the Lord's deliverance from Egypt, the Lord setting up true worship, and then that worship extending to the rest of the world. What does this tell us? Why is John hearkening back to this? Well, here's why John is hearkening back to this, because Revelation is showing us that God's plan is always about his worship. God's plan is always about his worship. No matter what God is doing in your life, no matter what God is doing in history, everything that God is doing, he's doing so that you will find your deepest joy in worshiping him. And, and how we're made is we're made as people who are spring-loaded to worship something. And so we all do worship something. The choice is, are you going to worship something that eats you alive or something that feeds you? And what happens is Babylon, the prostitute Babylon, and the beast uh, and the false prophet have all served the dragon because guess what the dragon wants as well? He wants your worship. What did he test Jesus with in the desert? Bow down and worship me. I'll make all the nations yours. The, the war of your heart and the fruit of your life is all about what or who you worship. Every decision that you make, every feeling that you feel goes down into the inner temple of your heart and relates somehow to whether you're worshiping the true God or a false one. We finished up Galatians in my Sunday school class this morning. And the, the, the final chapter of Galatians, Paul says this word boast a couple of times. Or he says, uh, we never want to boast in the flesh. May our boast always be in Christ and his cross. And, and what a boast is, because you're like, I didn't think Christians were supposed to boast. Well, a boast is that thing that makes you get up in the morning and that thing that you comfort yourself with when you're convicted. So whatever it is that motivates you getting up in the morning and whatever it is that causes you to kind of comfort yourself when you feel convicted, like one of the greatest ways to tell what it actually is you worship is when someone nails you between the eyes with a statement, you know you're wrong and you feel you're wrong. Listen to your heart. What's the very next thing you say to comfort yourself? Because I'm telling you, that's your God. If what you say is, after all I've done for you, that's a problem. Because that means what gets you up in the morning and what carries you through is what you're able to do for people and they should recognize it. Or you're convicted and nailed between the eyes and you say something like, uh, doesn't matter, I don't need people anyway, I've got all I need. Not good. What gets you up in the morning is the sense of security and wealth that you can build, build for yourself. What comes to your mind when somebody nails you between the eyes? We defend ourselves with our God. What is it that gets you up in the morning? It's your God. I've met people for whom it's their grandchildren. I've met people for whom it's their children. I've met people for whom it is their marriage. It is their job. It is their wealth. It, they nurse themselves on past hurts. 
they think they're the righteous person in a situation and that's how they nurse themselves. That's what they get up in the morning thinking. Everything is about worship. But what is it that you worship? Is it something that eats you alive or it's something that feeds you? You can tell when you think about what it is that's the wind behind your back or the thing that you comfort yourself with when you're convicted. For Paul, it was this. When the world or when God nailed him between the eyes, all Paul could say is, yeah, you're right, I'm pretty awful. But Jesus died for me. Jesus died for me. And because of Jesus, I can change. Or the thing that motivated Paul's life was the spread of the gospel and the, 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 the preservation of the church. So why is it that when Babylon is destroyed, God's people worship him? Because they're so thankful that the Lord has removed the thing that tempted them to worship something else. If you're not a Christian, you don't know what this is like. But for those of you who are believers, you know this. You know the weight of seeing everything that the world enjoys and like wanting to enjoy it as well. And aren't you looking forward to the day when that temptation is gone? Now, I told my Sunday school class this morning, I don't want to be a curmudgeon, but I'm going to go on a little rabbit trail for a, a second. And some of you may not like me for saying this, and I'm not going to say I don't care. I love you. Um, but I'm going to say it anyway. I'm really disappointed that now that Game of Thrones has ended, how many Christians are giving their opinion of how the ending was and how the series ended and all this stuff. I don't get it. Now, let me say this. I'm really tempted to watch it. Do you want to know why? Because there's sex and nudity in it. Hello, right? Because it is beguiling. Because there's all kinds of things in it. I just know what? I can't, I can't do that, can I? Right, right. I can't do that. I don't understand Christians who watch a show that celebrates everything that the gospel of Jesus saved us from. I don't get it. My understanding is that show has transitions with like, cover your ears, kids, like rape scenes in it. What are you doing? What are you doing? Now, I'm not going to pretend for a split second like I'm not tempted. I'm just glad it's done. I'm glad that's not like, I don't have to worry about that. And there's coming a day when all the things, listen, that tempt your pastor to want his heart to go after other things, there's coming a day when they're all going to be gone. And I'm just going to go, praise God. Thank the Lord that those things are destroyed. And so when the people of God look and they see that Babylon is now undone and destroyed, they just can't help but break out into hallelujahs. All the stuff that was there that was tempting my heart to go after other gods, it's now gone and I made it. And by God's grace, I didn't fail and I didn't crumble and I didn't fall. I was held and carried and the Lord kept my heart clean from those things and it's all his grace and now it's gone and we're vindicated because the world tells us over and over again that Christians are on the wrong side of history. And throughout history, God's people in one degree or another have always been persecuted as the idiots and the oddballs and the weirdos. 
And now in Revelation 19, we see where God in history lifted up his righteous people and said, these actually are my people. And it gives us faith to be sustained through all the temptations and trials and being an outcast in this earth. Because you know that one of these days, it's not Nancy Pelosi, but it's the Lord who's going to say who's on the right side of history. And it's not some Republican weirdo who says we're on the right. I don't care about either one of them. I want God to say who's on the right side of history. I want to hold on tight to him until he takes those who are on the wrong side out and says, these are my people. You know why? Because being a Christian is really hard. It's really hard to fight temptation. It's really hard to respond humbly. It's really hard to continue in generosity. It's really hard to speak a word that you know is going to upset people. It's really hard to maintain church community. It's all really, really hard. It's blessed and it's amazing, but it's hard. And what we see here in the removal of this Babylonian harlot is we see not only that God established his church through that, but we also see that the Lord is one day going to remove it all and we'll be able to praise his name and rejoice and exalt in him. Everything is about worship. And we need to hold on in worshiping the one true God until that day he removes all obstacles and temptations to other worship. In the meantime, the psalmist says, I will set no unworthy thing before my eyes. God help me. Help us all. The second thing we see is not only is Babylon destroyed, we have to think about what Babylon is. There's a word that sounds like Babylon that's all the way back in Genesis 11. What's the word? The Tower of... That's where that comes from. That was an attempt on, on the part of those people to take their new technology, that was bricks, and to make a big tower for the sake of their name to reach up to God on their own. And we see that in Babylon and in everything that was going on. And the Bible says that, that God, by his grace, just removed that, removed the, the, the harlot, and now he's getting ready to give his saints their due. Look at what it says. Not only is worship seen as the big thing, white garments are given as a gracious reward. Look at verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult. That's from Psalm 118, by the way. And give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and the bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. What does the Lord do? It's an amazing thing here. He gives his people white garments to vindicate them. To say, these are my people. These are the ones who are held on. But he does so much more than just say, these are my people. If you have eyes to see it, here's what's amazing. He makes them priests and prophets. Now, why do I say priests and prophets? Let's get nerdy for a second. The reason I say priests is because in Ezekiel 40 through 48, there's a vision of this new temple. And guess what the priests wear in this temple? White linen. That's God's way of saying, now all my people will be priests. 
Remember when we went through Leviticus? You're like, no, I've tried to block that out. I have PTSD from going through Leviticus. The whole point of Leviticus was that God's people, you, you have what's called unclean, clean, and holy, right? Uh, and what God's people were is they were clean, and they were to try and keep from being unclean. But then you have these priests who aren't just clean. They're what? Holy. And if a priest really messes up, then he's knocked down to clean. If he messes up again, he's knocked down to unclean, and he's got to go through a series of things. And the point wasn't just that God would have these priests called the Levites and that they would always be the priests of his people. The, the sub-point of Leviticus is that all the people who are now no longer unclean but clean will one day be made what? In other words, the point all along was for all of God's people to be priests, all of them to be able to minister in his presence, all of them to be able to come straight to him. And what we see here is that the Lord granted that his people would be put in white linen. And that's not only white saying they're like now his bride, that's white saying that they're uh, priests. And then just below that, we have this interesting thing going on in chapter uh, 19, verses 9 through 11. Let me read this for you. Look at it. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who were invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that for I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Jesus worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now, you, you get all that? Here's what's going on there because this is often misinterpreted. I don't think it is that John is tempted to worship this angel. Why do I say that? Well, because that same word worship is used in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. It, it's proskuneo. It just means to bow before. Now, sometimes it means worship as if you're bowing before the Lord. Sometimes it means not worship, but giving someone above you their due. So if you go before the Queen of England, what are you sort of expected to do? Or curtsy. Is that a, that's not a curtsy, is it? Like, that's a curtsy. Thank God I don't know what a curtsy is. Um, I think what's going on here is not that somehow in the midst of this, John was tempted to worship the angel. Because my thinking is, and I get this from a scholar who really opened this up to me, I think if that had been it, the angel would go, you're breaking one of the commandments, dude. Don't break the commandments. The angel doesn't say, don't worship me. That's breaking a commandment. He says, don't worship me. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Just bow before God. What's going on here? I think what's going on here is just like this word throughout the Old Testament is used to talk about bowing to your superiors as well as worshiping the Lord. That John just heard from the angel. The angel said, what you've heard is the word of God. And so John gets ready to bow down and go, man, hey, thanks for being the mediator of God's word to me. Thank you for being his prophet. Thank you for speaking to me. And the angel goes, no, 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 no. I'm not above you here, dude. I'm with you. I speak the word of God, and now you speak the word of God. What does he say? But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow what? Servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus, worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of what? In other words, again, nerd moment here, but we got to do this. At the beginning of the book of Revelation, it was the angels who were around God's throne as his counsel, as those to whom God 
speaks, right? And, and they deliver his word. Angels have been delivering the word of God throughout the book of Revelation. And now they're talking about the word of God. And John goes, hey, thanks for giving me the word of God. And the angel's like, no, 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 no. It's no longer just angels who are in the prophetic counsel of God. You're now here as well. Because there's only been a few people throughout the Old Testament who were called prophets. And what is it about a prophet? Are you ready? A prophet is someone who is brought into God's counsel. It's not just someone who speaks God's word. It's someone who's brought into God's counsel. In other words, Moses was a prophet, right? And the Lord came down to Moses. He's like, Moses, I think I'm going to destroy all those people and just start with you. And what did Moses do? No, Lord. No, 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 no. If you destroy them, the Egyptians will think that you, you've just brought us out here to kill us. Don't do that. And the Lord's like, okay. Or how about Abraham? The Lord goes to Abraham, who was a prophet, and he says, Abraham, I'm thinking about destroying uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham goes, listen, if there are 50 righteous people, will you spare? Yes. If there are 40, will you spare? Yes. If there are 30, and he goes down all the way to 10. What is Abraham and Moses doing? God is revealing his plans, and they've entered into his counsel. Do you see that? Or the Lord says, what am I going to do that I don't first reveal to a prophet? So you have these select men in the Old Testament, and you have angels who stand in God's counsel. After all, in Job, when the Lord says, have you considered my servant Job? He's talking to some angelic fellows, and they go to talking about it. Y'all not nearly excited about this as you should be, but listen to me. This is why in the, the, uh, the Old Testament, Moses says something like, I wish that everybody could be a prophet. And this is why in Joel 2 it says when that new covenant comes, uh, all of God's people from the least of them to the greatest will prophesy. What does that mean? That means that now in Jesus, there's no longer like this angel posse protecting God from his people. Now his people are God's priests who can enter into his presence. And now they're God's people who can enter into his counsel and speak forth his word. And so... This is not John getting ready to commit idolatry. This is John bowing to this angel saying, hey, man, thanks for being God's prophet. And John, the angel's like, don't do that. We're on level terms now. You just speak the word. You have the testimony of Jesus. You can be God's prophet too. So what does this mean? Well, for, it means a couple things for us, and I'll say this and then I'll be done. Number one, the fact that God, see, Rome thought they'd destroy the church when they destroyed Jerusalem. But in destroying Jerusalem, Rome was just getting a major temptation out of the way. Because from that point on, the church just grew so that within 400 years, a Caesar was a Christian. Within Paul's lifetime, there were people in Caesar's household who were Christians. What, what God was doing was not... He was getting something out of the way. He wasn't destroying the church. He was destroying that which was holding the church back. And what this should do is this should give us hope to know this, that yes, you suffer as a righteous person. Yes, you suffer as someone who holds on to God's word. You suffer enmity with people. You suffer rejection. You also just suffer the temptation because let's be honest, sometimes there's nothing we want more than to go along with the world. Amen? But we fight it because we know better. And what Revelation 19 is intended to help you to see is this, is that if you hold on to God, one day he himself will speak and say who is on the right side of history. One day he will vindicate his people. 
and he will show the world that Jesus was indeed the way. So in the meantime, you've got to hold on and you've got to continue to fight until death or until the Lord returns. And you have good reason to hold on because throughout history, the Lord has shown himself faithful to his people. And so continue to worship him. The second point is this, that there is, believe it or not, a whole lot more of God for you to know. In a Baptist church, I would want at least one amen to that. Listen to me. There's a whole lot more of God for you to know. There's a whole lot more of God for you to know. Because you are now a priest and a prophet in Jesus. What God has done is he's drawn you into himself now, there's a lot of things that take our gaze off the Lord, but listen to me. There's so much more of God for you to know. And that's exactly why you need to dedicate yourself to his word and to his purposes and to his way of love so that you will see more and more and more and more of God in action and to see more and more and more and more of his truth in your life. And I'll just close by saying this. There's a whole lot of you in here today for whom this basically means next to nothing. And let me tell you why it might. It might be because you're lost. It might be that all you ever wanted was to have your cake and eat it too. And so some pastor came down and said, if you'll sign a card and get dunked, then you're going to heaven no matter what. And you're like, no matter what means I can do crap like watching Game of Thrones. And it looks good and it tickles my fancy, great. Or uh, I've been baptized, I'm going to heaven. What does it matter if I spend a year sleeping with my boyfriend? Or I'm going to heaven, what does it matter? And so you don't suffer anything, you're not rejected for anything, and you enjoy the world, and you've got this little certificate that says that you're going to heaven. So when you hear Christians celebrating the destruction of something, all you can say is that's not loving. It's not that it's not loving, it's that you've never suffered. And so this means very little to you. But for those of us who in our lives, day in and day out, fight, fight for holiness. This is everything. That God's going to remove everything that tempts me. He's going to vindicate me because of the glory of his son. And this is a white robe that he has granted for me to wear. And he's going to bring me in as a priest and a prophet to him. And I'll get to be with him forever. That's everything. That's everything. If this means nothing to you this morning, then check the temple of your heart and ask what actually is down there. Is it just a little certificate with a checkbox? Or is it a desire to actually know God and to suffer everything for his sake? Because in him I found the truest treasure. Here we have the people of God seeing one of their great enemies destroyed, singing songs of hallelujah because the whore will no longer tempt them. And next week, we're going to see how he's going to take care of the beast. And that's going to be interesting because everybody, I think, misunderstands the millennium. That'll be fun. I say everybody, myself included. But we're going to work at it next week. And we'll see how the Lord sets Satan in chains for a thousand years. And we'll see what all that means. And all of that is to prepare the way for the new heaven and the new earth. So let's wrap up today. What do we need to know today? 
Question one, when somebody nails you between the eyes with a truth that really stings, where do you go to comfort yourself? Because that's your God. You need to ask that question. And if it's not, Jesus was slain for my sin and therefore I'm right with God and he has declared me holy and he will make me holy even though this person is right about my sin, you're in a good place. If it's, if it's I'm a good granddad, you're in the wrong place because your grandkids are going to kill you one day. They're going to break your heart, right? Every other God will let you down. So who's your God this morning? And then secondly, do you long for and look forward to the day, listen to me, when God removes all temptation so that you could worship him from your heart the way you really, really want to? Then hang on to him. And every single bit of this has been won for us and provided for us by Jesus, our Savior, who took pity on us in our helpless estate and for us and for our salvation came down and earned the right for us to be called children of God. And if you don't know him this morning, that's where you start, repenting of boasting in anything else and making Jesus and his cross your only.